If you would, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, it's a a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture. And by interesting, I mean it's not read very often. Uh, Most people skip it. Uh, Because in Genesis chapter 5, we have in the King James Bible a whole bunch of, uh, there's a certain word that appears over and over, begats. This father begat this son, and that son begat somebody else. And and Genesis 5 describes ten generations from Adam all the way to Noah. And the question is, why? I mean, couldn't God have just sort of given us a little bit of a a summary? Is all of that really necessary? Couldn't couldn't God have have just said, well... Adam and Eve had children who had children, and they lived a long time, and then Noah was born, right? Um, But the question, why is it there, sort of answers itself. There's a reason that all of these generations are listed. And so Genesis 5 tells us a story. It is the story of the begats. Now, I understand that you probably woke up this morning and said, you know what I want to hear today? I want to go to church and hear the story of the begats. And just in case that was you, you're in luck. You're very blessed today. Uh, But there might be one or two people here that did not have that experience as they woke up this morning And you might be thinking, uh, why? Why is this necessary? Well, I want to tell you from the outset, the story of the begats is not simply a story of something that happened a long time ago. The story of the begats is the story of all societies at all time. The story of the begat explains the natural course of degeneration that affects every society and culture, including ours. You see, in every culture, in life itself, there is an ever-present, invisible, destructive force working against you. And if you let it, this force will keep you from having a happy and fulfilling life in the Lord. That force we might call chaos. It is a force of just natural deconstruction of things. Now, if you and I decide, well, I'm just going to you know, go about my daily life, and I'm just going to use my own wisdom to try to get through this life and deal with the problems as they come along, if that's our attitude, you and I will inevitably walk headlong into disaster. The only way to truly combat this invisible destructive force called chaos that is ever-present in our lives is to follow the instructions found in this book, the Bible. This book is the Word of God Himself to humanity. And in this book, we have much more than simply human wisdom. We have God's wisdom. And so hopefully by the end of this sermon you'll have a better understanding of how the story of the begats does not need to be your story. Now, I 
named this uh, sermon a holy descent because we have two things happening simultaneously in the story of the begats in Genesis chapter 5. We have a holy line descended from Adam to Seth and all of his descendants all the way to Noah. And so these are people that God has set apart for a reason. That ultimate purpose is going to be the culmination of the coming of the Savior of the world in Jesus Christ. You go to Jesus' uh, genealogies found in the New Testament. You see in Luke chapter 3 that it goes all the way back to Seth and to Adam. And so we have a holy line, a, a scarlet thread of redemption, we might say, that, that, it, that goes through this holy line. At the same time, we have a descent of societies leading all the way up to the flood. And so these two dynamics are happening at one and the same time. So let's go ahead and begin. What we find at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 5, and if you haven't already turned there, I invite you to do that. In Genesis chapter 5, we see something about the image of God in us. And so this is what we read in verses 1 and 2. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He made them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. A couple of things we want to point out here from this verse. We've already covered Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, talking about this in more detail. But I just want to point out a couple of things I want you to remember. Number one, notice it says he made him in the likeness of God. Remember that, in the likeness of God. We're going to come back to this in a second. And the second thing is, he blessed them, and what did God do? He called them mankind. God named humanity. That signifies that he has authority over humanity. If you have authority over something, you have the right to name that something. Any one of us that might have a dog, we name our dog. If we have a cat, we wonder, why did I ever get a cat? But if we have a dog, we, we name the dog, don't we? We have children, we name our children, and there's a reason why uh, wives typically take on the name of their husbands when they get married. You can figure it out. There's somebody there in the family that has the authority uh, that God will hold responsible for the spiritual welfare of the family. And so that's just an interesting little tidbit. Let's move on to verse 3. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness. Way to go, Adam. According to his image, and named him Seth. Okay, we have the same phrase. In his likeness, according to his image. The same terms here that we read about in verse 1 that really refers back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And if you go back, you, you don't have to do this now, but if you went back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, uh, when, when God made Adam in his likeness according to his image, uh, the question is this, was that just for Adam? Or did the image of God continue to be passed to subsequent generations? Well, here we have the answer. The image of God was passed along to subsequent generations, and this is very important, 
it means that the image of God was not destroyed by Adam's sin. It means that you, male or female, doesn't matter, you are made in the very image of God. Let me explain what that means. People say, okay, that, that sounds theological. It sounds deep. It sounds meaningful. Maybe it sounds wonderful, but I don't really know what it means. Let me explain what it means. What it means to be an image bearer of God is that you are God's royal representative on earth. You are a royal representative of the king and the creator of all things. And it means this too, that God himself has given you some aspect of rule within his creation. Whatever way that you rule, you are to do it well. You are to do it in a way that honors the king. Whether this rule of yours means that you as a parent rule your kids, you're to do it well. Whether it means you rule your family, you rule a business, you rule your schoolwork, teenagers, you're to do it well. Whether it means you rule at your job and the, the responsibilities of your job, whether you rule in your position as a civil servant or your position at church as a, as a pastor or as a deacon, or as a committee member, or as a ministry leader, or in the community, you rule as a coach of a little league team, or you rule as a Scrabble Club director, or as you rule as an umpire, you get the idea. There is a way in which God has given you some aspect of His creation to rule. You are to do it well. You are to do it in honor of the king of kings. You are to rule as if you are a prince or a princess who is representing his father, the king. Why do you rule that way? Because that's who you are. I'm looking at a room full of princes and princesses of the king of kings. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. What an incredible honor we have. Well, now let me point out something else in this chapter. We have a lot of big, long lifespans. And then something um, that comes along with having a big, long lifespan is also found. Let's see if we can figure it out. In the next verses, verses 4 and 5. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lived or lasted 930 years. Then he died. We read that and we think, 930 years. That is a long time. How could that be? I'll tell you how that could be. I don't know. But for some reason, before the flood, before Noah's flood, people seemed to live for a very, very 
long time. And after the flood, you can chart it out if you're really bored someday, but after the flood, people's lives became progressively shorter until finally we reach what we would consider a normal lifespan today. Now, to us, what jumps off the page when we read those verses are the the big numbers, the long years. But contextually, let me show you what should have jumped off the page. It's right there. Let me tell you what should have jumped off the page when you're reading this chapter. And I want you to see if you can figure it out. So Adam's life lived 900, lasted 930 years. Then he died. Verse, verse 8. So Seth's life lasted 912 years. Then he died. Verse 14. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years. Then he died. So Mahalalel's life in verse 17 lasted 895 years. Then he died. In verse 27, so Methuselah's life lasted 969 years. Then he died. Verse 31, so Lamech's life lasted 777 years. Then he died. If you're reading this for the first time, something becomes very apparent that previously to this chapter was very rare. Death. It's all over this chapter. You see, back in Genesis 2, God told Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would die. But now we've learned from this chapter and also as Romans chapter 5 verse 12 states so succinctly, death spread to all men. The story of Genesis 5 is the story of your family tree. There's something interesting about your family tree if you've ever done genealogy work. All the people almost listed in that family tree are dead. There's always one notable exception, and it's the person reading the paper. Maybe a few others. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Listen to me, there's coming a day when you will die. Are you ready? If you're not ready for that day, you need to get right with the Lord Jesus Christ and be ready for that day. Why? I cannot guarantee you 969 years. In fact, the odds would be that your life will be much less than that. Unfortunately, the curse of death is such that people die on their way home from church. Even innocent infants, unfortunately, are subject to the curse of death. What a terrible enemy death is. But it is an enemy that you undoubtedly will face. If you're not ready, you need to be ready today. It's time to get right with the Lord. Now let's look in more detail at the men in this line of Seth. 
Now, each one of these men, it's sort of an interesting thing here with all of these men that are listed here, because they're not the only people that existed. I mean, every single one of them, it says, any father to other sons and daughters. So there's a bunch of other people around. But these guys are highlighted, 10 generations of them. It's as if, and I believe this to be so, that a particular person was highlighted from each generation. Now, why? Why was this particular person named and all the other people? Well, they're, they're just in the group. Sons and daughters, just a bunch of people. Nameless people will never know this side of heaven. How and why are these people named? Well, I believe that the meaning of each of these men's names tell us something about what was going on in that generation. I know that in, in American uh, culture, we don't really pay a lot of attention to names, okay? My name is David, you know that. But what does my name really mean? Well, in English, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, we don't go around and say, hey, you know, how are David today? We don't, we don't talk about my name as if it is a verb or a noun. We talk about it as a proper noun, as a person referring to me. I'll give you an example. The closest example we can have to what actually took place in ancient uh, in ancient Hebrew, and even in modern Hebrew, in ancient Israel, is this. Uh, American uh, Indians, Native Americans, many times uh, they will have their name, if it's translated into English, it will say something like this. Uh, screaming Eagle. Rushing Water. Um, the Man Who Stands on a Mountain. Something like that. And so their name has actual meaning when we say it in English. What does the name David mean? You know, really, really don't know. Who knows? Well, the only way to really know what David means is to go back to the original language, which in my case, David is a Hebrew word that means beloved. And so if we were to use names like they did in ancient Hebrew, I might in a very romantic way say to my wife, you are my beloved. Instead, I would say, you are my David. She'd be a little creeped out by that. What does that mean? It doesn't make any sense in English, but in Hebrew it makes sense. Their names had meanings that they would use in regular conversation. And so these men's names stood for something that was true, culturally true. It was a trend in their generation. And here's the interesting thing that I believe, that the chain of generational trends that we read about in Genesis chapter 5 is the same chain of generational trends that we find throughout history and even in our day today. So let's begin in verse 6. We begin with this guy named Seth. We read in verses 6 and 7, Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. The word Seth means a point. Or compensate. Compensate for what? Compensate for Abel. Eve had lost a son. Eve's son Abel was killed by another one of her sons, Cain. Then Cain had to leave. Eve was left childless. And the Lord provided a compensation for Eve. And that's what he was named. Compensate. 
In verse 9 and 10, we read about Enosh. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. The word Enosh means man or man-centered. Man or man-centered. Now, if there was a modern-day, recent-history equivalent to this generational pattern, we might see this in the Roaring Twenties. When people became very man-centered, it was all, if it feels good, do it. And so that was indicative of that culture. Then we come to verse 12, Kenan. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. The word Kenan means inquisitiveness curiousness. Now, ancient Jewish tradition says that what he was really inquisitive about was materialism, gaining wealth. And that generation became very wealthy. And again, if there's a modern equivalent to that, it may be the productivity and the prosperity after World War II. After Kenan, we read about his son, Mahalalel. In verses 15 and 16, Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Mahalalel means spiritual, praising a God. You hear the word El there, a God or a higher being, praising a higher being. If there's a modern equivalent to that, you might, you might say, well, praising a God, praising God, that sort of sounds good. Not necessarily. It could be a false God. And the modern equivalent, I think, of that in the last century would be the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. You remember that, probably, if you're old enough. What happened to that generation that was not true of the previous generation? Those kids never knew hunger. Not most of them. Those kids grew up spoiled. How do I know? I was born in 1969. Those kids had a tendency to rebel against the materialism of their parents. Because, you know, the material of of their parents, for the first time in history, middle-class people could have houses after World War II. Indoor plumbing. That's incredible. Thank you, Lord, every day for indoor plumbing. That's incredible. The kids who grew up with it didn't know what it meant to have beans and cornbread for dinner or maybe just grow up hungry. So they were spoiled, and they rebelled against their parents' lifestyle. And they had a phrase. And the phrase actually indicates something in Mahalalel's name where Mahalalel would like, go up to a higher power, worship, or be devoted to a higher power. What did kids in the 60s and 70s say? Hey, let's go get high. Let's go get high. Now, there was a subculture within that movement that was very spiritual and godly in many respects, and it was called the Jesus Movement. I want to get high on Jesus, not on drugs they would say. 
And so, but you had this overall generational movement that moved away from the dependency on materialism. And we find, I believe, this pattern to be true from Genesis 5 even to modern day. After Mahalalel, we have his son Jared. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Do you know what the word Jared means? It means decline. Would we not say that there has been a precipitous moral decline after this rebelliousness and this idea of worshiping something higher than simply materialism? There's been a fall morally in our society, moral confusion in our society in the generation that followed the rebelliousness of the 60s and 70s. And then we come to this guy named Enoch. Now, Enoch's a special case. Let's read about him. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. The word Enoch means dedicated, and Enoch was certainly dedicated, and he was dedicated to the right person, which is the Lord. There's only two people in the Old Testament who are said to have walked with God, for that phrase, walked with God, occurred. Enoch and Noah. Enoch's in a special, pretty special category. And then it says, then he was not there because God took him. What does that mean? It means what it says. God took him. Maybe very similarly to the way that God took uh, or oversaw the taking of Moses' body. But God somehow took Enoch. And whatever that means, here's the important part for us today, in this chapter at least. Enoch broke the pattern. And it teaches us a very important lesson that I will show you at the end of this sermon. So we'll come back to Enoch in a second. And then we come across to this guy named Methuselah in verses 25 and 26. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Who thought that I would have a problem saying the word Melech with all these other words? But anyway, the word Methuselah means man of Selah. Now, what in the world does that mean, man of Selah? Well, Selah, in this context and a few other contexts in the Bible, and in, in the book of Job, for example, Selah is the river of death. The river of death. And so up to this point in the story, the generations go from being man-centered to inquisitive about materialism, focused on a higher power, decline, death, and then we get to 
Lamech. We read in verse 28 through 30, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named his son Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. Wasn't Lamech mentioned in the previous chapter? Wasn't he part of Cain's lineage, not Seth's lineage? Wasn't he the guy in the previous chapter who thought he was smarter than God? He took two wives from himself instead of one, and he instructed his family, saying, should he be murdered, he should be avenged 77 times. Isn't this the same guy? I knew you were thinking that question. That's a great question to be thinking. It shows how close you pay attention to God's Word. The answer is, yes, there was a guy in chapter 4, but no, it's not the same guy. It's a different guy named the same name, and that should tell us something. It should tell us we should pay attention. And he names Noah, he names his son, the one who will bring us relief. Now, you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, when God held Adam accountable for his sin. And if you were reading that for the very first time, you would expect God to say this, because you've listened to your wife instead of me, and I am going to curse who? You would expect God to say, I'm going to curse you. But God said, I'm going to curse the ground. I'm going to curse the ground. And every time you try to grow some vegetables, every time you try to do anything with the ground to make it produce what you need it to produce, it's going to be hard. Very hard. So God put a curse on the ground. Now, why in the world, this many generations later, does this guy Lamech believe that his son Noah is going to bring relief from the curse? Here's why. Because Noah represents the first generation born after Adam died. Lamech's thinking, hey, this curse on the ground, it's dead along with Adam. Lamech was wrong. The curse on the ground continued. So Lamech believed that his son would provide rest from the painful toil of working the ground, and so that's what he named his son. He named his son the word rest. When the Lord instructs later in Exodus God's people to rest on the Sabbath, it's the same word. He instructs them to take a Noah. That's what the word Noah means. Now, both of these Lamechs, the one in chapter 4 and the one in chapter 5, they share a name, but they also shared a false belief. Both of them believed that they could have benefits without responsibility. In chapter 4, that Lamech tried to have the benefit of physical intimacy without the responsibility of children. That's why you have a second wife. You got one wife for the uh, kids and another wife that's a trophy wife. It didn't work out that way. 
That wife had kids too, but he was trying to have benefits without responsibility. This one, chapter 5, he believed that he could have the benefit of economic wealth without hard work on the ground. By the way, what does Lamech mean? The word Lamech means poor, made low. We see a series of generational patterns that I want you to see up here on the screen. We see one generation leading to the next. A man-centered generation seeking after materialism as, the, their, as their children will do. Their children will rebel against that, focus on something higher, maybe God, maybe something else. There will be a decline if they're not focusing on God which will lead to widespread death and finally poverty and lowliness. Now, one of the lessons that we can learn from Enoch who interrupted this pattern is this. You don't have to be a victim to these trends. You have the choice have the option to walk with God, just as Enoch did. God has given you free will. What will most people do? Whatever society is doing at the time, they just go along, tossed about like a duplicitous man, a double-minded man. Tossed about by the waves. You don't have to be that way. You can be like the man who built his life, his house, on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, if enough people in a society decide to be like Enoch and to walk with God, it can change the entire course of the generation and completely interrupt this cycle of destruction. This particular cycle of destruction, what did it lead to? It led to the Lord himself declaring that the whole earth needed to be wiped out. Save a few. You have the option. You have the choice to get right with God, to live for Him. You have the ability to turn to Him. How is that? Because God may be speaking to you right now. The Lord may be leading you. He may be drawing you to Himself. And if you and your response to God would say, I, how can I be saved? You can be saved by turning to His Son that He sent on our behalf. You must know who Jesus is. He's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, come in flesh, made just like one of us, and yet without sin. What did He do? He died on the cross for you and me. He lived a holy life, then He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. What did His death on the cross do? It provided atonement for our sins, a covering for our sins, cleansing of our sins. He paid the penalty on our behalf. He was our substitute. 
and He rose from the grave in order to give us eternal life. So what must I do to be saved? I must believe in Him. He's the only way. I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved and follow Him because He is the Lord over all.